record. The book of Exodus uh, tonight, again, I'm going to just give a brief intro um, and, and we'll, we'll dive right into it. So the book of Exodus is, is the second book of the Bible. Uh, so it goes Genesis, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So it's, it's the second book of the Bible. Uh, and it's the second part of, of what the Jews call the, the Pentateuch, which is, uh, which is from the Greek, which means pretty much a volume of five. Penta means five, and, and the Tuch is, is a volume of five. So the, and the Greeks, you know, the Jews in the Greek, they would call it the Pentateuch, or in Hebrew, they, they would call it the Torah, you know, which are the, fir- the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's also uh, referred to as, as uh, the Law of Moses or the Book of the Law. So whenever you read in the, in the New Testament, like for example, in the Gospels of, of John or Matthew, Mark, and, and, and Luke, and when they make a reference to the Law or to the, or to the writings of Moses, they're always referring to the first five books of the Bible, which is the Pentateuch or the Torah. Um, or, or, so it's these five, first five books. And so Exodus is the second of those five books. It was written by, by Moses, of course, along with the other four books of, of, of the Torah, of the law. Um, it was given the title Exodus. Uh, it wasn't given the title Exodus until after it, w- it started getting translated into, into, uh, into Latin and then, and then uh, all these other languages. Um, but it was given this title of Exodus because it records for us the departure of the children of Israel from Egypt into the promised land. Right? And, and into that land that, that God had promised to give them way, way back ever since uh, uh, Abraham. So a couple, a few hundred years back. And so it records for us the Exodus you know, or the, the departing of the children of Israel from, from Egypt into, into the promised land, which is the, the land of Canaan. Also, we see that the, that the book of Exodus covers a period of about 80 years, like 80 or 82 years around that time. Um, and it, it, we pretty much have a, have a time period of from, from a little shortly before Moses was born to uh, about uh, maybe the events occurred at Mount Sinai, which is from anywhere from 1526 B.C. to 1446 B.C., so anywhere around 80-something years. And so... As we get into the, into the book of, of, of Exodus, and especially like just the Old Testament as a whole. I mean, if you've kind of listened to the guys on TV or uh, a lot of the guys that, that are on the radio, a lot of like the big name popular uh, preachers and pastors, you'll, uh, you'll be surprised to hear that a lot of pastors teach from the pulpit that the, the Old Testament is irrelevant. Uh, it's not for today. That us as, as, as believers, us as Christians, as, as part of, of the new covenant of the New Testament... Right, that, that we have no need to, to study the book of, of, of the Old Testament, uh, to apply it, to even get into it, to even teach it, to know it, because it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, uh, it doesn't, it's not for us, right? It's not going to benefit us, and, and we see that that's completely false, right? The Bible tells us that all of God's word is inspired. That's what Paul told Timothy that that all of God's word is inspired by God, meaning it's God breathed. And so, really, we see that the whole Bible is a story about Jesus. And we can find Jesus in every single one of the pages of the Bible. And that's always the aim, is, is to extract Christ from the text. And, and one of the books that, that does a, just an awesome job of this is the book of Exodus. Because as we, study, as we go through the book of Exodus, first we see in Exodus, we witness God beginning to fulfill His promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, that promise of, of, of giving them the, the, the promised land, right? And... Um, he actually promised Abraham way, way, way before in the book of Genesis. He says, I will make you a father of many nations. And through you, through your seed, the whole earth will be blessed. Meaning us too. And so this promise that's fulfilled to, to Abraham and to the children of Israel uh, affect us. Why? Because through his lineage, through the nation of Israel came Jesus Christ, the Messiah. 
And so we, we start seeing the, the beginning phases of these, the beginning, the beginning stages of this here in the book of Exodus. Also here in the book of Exodus, we, uh, we are given the Ten Commandments. Um, we see the instituting of the Passover also, which, we're gonna, which we know as Easter, and we're going to celebrate a couple weeks from now. And so that's, that all has its origins in the book of Exodus. Also, uh, we see the building of their tabernacle, or what, what they would know as, you know, before the temple was built, uh, the, the children of Israel, they would go into, into a tent. They called it the tabernacle, the meeting place uh, uh, with God. And so only Moses was allowed in there, and, 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 and Aaron, his brother, which, who was the priest, for, uh, for the nation of Israel. And so we see that, that, that this was the meeting place for the, for the people and God. Eventually, the tabernacle uh, was, was, from the tabernacle was, uh, was built a temple by, by King Solomon. And then eventually, uh, the temple was destroyed. And now the, the, the nation of Israel has no temple. But we see that, that, this, that this worship of God in a, in a place, in a location, or a tabernacle, or in a temple, or we could call it a church. You know, all this is instituted here in the book of Exodus. And we see also the instituting of animal sacrifices to cover sins. And really, again, all these things are just foreshadows of Christ. Right? And again, as we mentioned before, that the whole Bible is about Jesus. And it, from the very beginning to the very end, you know, it's all about Christ. And again, our aim is to just extract Christ from the text. And so with that as just a brief introduction, I want to just jump right into it. And so the book of Exodus chapter 1, I'll start off by reading verse 1. It says, Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob. Uh, and these are the names Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. For Joseph was in Egypt already, and Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all of that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied, and, and grew exceedingly, uh, exceedingly mightily, and the land was filled with them. And we'll stop right there. And so the book of Exodus starts off with. Uh, with, with the words, now these are the names of the children of Israel. And so it starts off with a genealogy. Now, in the, in the original language, which is the Hebrew, uh, instead of now, it starts with and, right? Because keep in mind that it was, these five, the first five books were one whole writing. They weren't divided into five. They were just one long scroll. And so it, it, it picks it up right here, but with the, instead of the word now, it starts off with the word and. And so actually the book of Exodus is a continuation of the book of Genesis, which is the, the, the book uh, prior to this. So Exodus is just a continuation to Genesis. We see that the book of Genesis ends with the family of Jacob, uh, which is Jacob, his sons, uh, the, his sons' wives and their kids. It, it ends with, with all of them arriving in the land of Egypt because of a famine in the land. A couple months ago, we, we finished, we actually went through the whole book of Genesis. And if you guys remember, we, we, when we finished uh, the story, the book of Genesis, uh, there was a famine in the land. And if you guys remember, uh, it, the, 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 the last chapters of the book of Genesis revolved around a character by the name of Joseph, which was one of Jacob's sons. The, the story goes that, that uh, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. And as he was sold into slavery, he ended up in Egypt. And he, he, he was a slave in Egypt. He was in prison for like 13 years. And eventually God favored him. And he pretty much rose up into power. And he became the second most powerful man in the whole nation of Egypt. And all this, we see that it was just God's divine plan. which was just God's hand behind all, behind all this. Just kind of moving the, the puzzle pieces around, right? The, the chess pieces around. And as, as Joseph was now the second most powerful person in the whole world at that time, pretty much. Right? In the nation of, of, of Egypt, but the whole world, really. 
And we see that there was a, a, a famine in the, in the land. And all the nations, all the peoples were coming to Egypt. Because God had given Joseph this, uh, this, this specific, this special insight into the famine. And he, and he gave him a game plan. And so this is the game plan that, that, that God gave Joseph. He said, look, for seven, you're going to have seven fruitful years and seven famished years. And so God told Joseph, in those seven fruitful years, save up in abundance. So that those seven, those seven famine, uh, famished years, you can have enough to get by. And so we see that through Joseph... God used Joseph to provide not just for the nation of Egypt, but also for all the surrounding nations. And all the, the, the world nations came to Egypt uh, for food, for, for grain, for, for wheat, in order to survive this famine. And along with those people that came to, to Egypt to, to, uh, and, and for refuge and for food, for help, was Joseph's family. Those, his brothers that sold him to slavery, his dad who we hadn't seen for years. And all of a sudden there was this family reunion. And now we see that, that God used this famine, God used Joseph being enslaved, being imprisoned, then being the second most powerful man in Egypt in order to save his family. And out of his family now, uh, now uh, uh, was, was born what we know as the nation of Israel. And so the book of Genesis again ends with, with all the family of Jacob. Uh, Jacob, his, his 11 sons, uh, Joseph who was already in Egypt, his two sons, all of them in Egypt. And here in the first verses tells us that, that there was 70 persons in total. And so they started off with, with 70 people. And now, and now a, a, a significant amount of, of time has passed since, since the last verse of Genesis and this first book of Exodus. Somewhere around 400 years has, has, has passed. And so they've multiplied exceedingly. They've grown mighty. They've become a, a, a whole nation within themselves. But they're still in Egypt. Now, we see that, that uh, again, that the book of, of, of Genesis, there in Genesis 46, 31, it says this. It says, Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and those of my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come up to me, and the, and the men are shepherds, for their occupation has been to, to feed livestock, and they have brought their flocks, their herds, and all they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? That you shall say, Your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians." And so we see that as, as Joseph's family came to Egypt in order to find refuge, uh, Joseph did something interesting. Is that he told them, right, when you guys come, look, uh, Pharaoh's going to ask you guys, what do you do? Because obviously he loved Joseph. Uh, Joseph was, was wise. He was smart. He was savvy. Right. He was he, he was he was he was sharp. And so Joseph, you know, again, the Egypt, the, the Pharaoh probably thought, hey, man, this probably runs in the family. So Joseph told his brothers and he told his family, look, man, when they ask you, what, what do you do for work? What's your trade? What, what's your job? Tell Pharaoh that you are shepherds. Why? Because for the nation of, Israel, of Egypt at the time, sorry, I get them mixed up. But for Egypt at that time, they were like the, the most uh, advanced. You know, they had the most advanced technology. They had the most uh, advanced society. They had the most advanced, you know, philosophical thoughts. It was like a progressing nation. And for them to... to to look down uh, to have shepherds among them it was kind of like an abomination it, it would be like man like you have a rocket scientist you know living in the same household as like uh, not to be mean you know, but as like a, a homeless person right so it, there was just this huge gap you know within societies and so in this was wisdom joseph was exercising wisdom because if, if his brothers and his family would have came in and said, oh, yeah, we're good at this, we're good at that, then immediately they would have in, intermingled with the Egyptians and the nation of Israel, as we know it, would have just dissolved, right? Because it would have been so inter intermingled with the Egyptians, it would have, it, they would have just dissolved. 
But because the, they came in saying that they were shepherds, that they were, you know, that, that, that they were with the livestock all their lives, then uh, we see that Pharaoh actually gave them this little piece of land, and they were off to themselves the whole time. So for those 400 years, they were just kind of, they were in Egypt, but they were like in the outskirts of Egypt, just growing and, and, and multiplying and just being fruitful for 400 years and just being unbothered, right? And again, this is just God's just sovereign hand behind this whole plan, right? And it was uh, His hand just, just uh, preserving them, preserving them as a nation. And so here we are some 400 years later now, and a whole generation has passed away. There's been like four generations since Joseph up until, the, up until verse 1 of the book of Exodus. There's been about four generations. So there's been about four pharaohs who have, who have come into power now. And so we see that while Joseph was alive, the family was protected. But now that Joseph is long gone, now that those pharaohs who knew Joseph were long gone, now, now, that, now that those Egyptians who knew the story of Joseph and how Joseph uh, uh, saved the, the, the nation of, of Egypt, all those guys are long gone. So those guys are just history now. And so he is long gone now. And so is that Pharaoh, and so is all the Egyptians. And so the family of Jacob, which is the Hebrew nation, has now grown and multiplied exceedingly. And so it goes on to say this in verse 8. It says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more, and they're mightier than we are. He says, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or harshly with them, lest they multiply and happen in the event of war, that they also join our enemies and fight against us, so go, up, go, so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities uh, by the names of Piham and Ramses. And verse 12 says, But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they grew and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard, with hard bondage. In mortar and brick and in all manner of service in the field. And their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. So we'll stop right there. And so notice it says right there in verse 12. That the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. So here's the nation of Israel. They're just, man, they're just blowing up, right? They're, they're, they're growing uh, out of control. God's blessing them, no doubt. You know, and they're just growing in numbers out of control. And it gets, it gets, to, it gets to the eyes of the Pharaoh at the time now. You know, he says, man, look, this nation that's, that's, that's living here in Egypt, the nation of Israel, the, the, the Hebrew children, those guys, are, they're, they're, they're outnumbering us already. And they, they could get to the point where if, you know, all of a sudden a, a war breaks out with the surrounding nation, they could join that nation and they'll overthrow us. And so what this Pharaoh did is that he begins to kind of, you know, exercise just a, a heavy hand over the, over the Hebrew children you know, in order to kind of keep them in check. Right, he's gonna kind of like remind him who's boss. Like, hey man, you guys are in, are my land. You're in my nation. You're in my turf. Right, you're my territory. You belong to me, type of thing. And so what he's doing is that he's gonna try to just keep them in line, keep them in check, keep them controlled by setting these uh, these taskmasters or these these foremen or these you know these overseers over them. And they're pretty, they're gonna pretty much just put them to work uh, as slave labor, as slave labor, right? And they're gonna treat them harshly. They're gonna mistreat them. They're gonna be cruel to them in order again to keep them in line. And so we're told that they. That, that they afflicted them, but the more they afflicted them, the, they, the more they multiplied and grew. That's awesome. That's awesome because as they were being persecuted, you know, instead of kind of shrinking down or instead of backing away or instead of, or instead of retreating or instead of kind of, you know, all right, you know, let's, uh, let's stop having babies or let's stop multiplying or let's stop growing strong. Instead, we see that the Lord blessed them under this heavy hand of persecution, under this heavy hand of affliction, the Lord, the Lord blessed them and they grew even more. And, 
And we see that this is kind of like a, something that, that the children of, of God always have in common, whether it's the Jews, whether it's you know, Christians, uh, whether it's the church. We see that, that this is something that, that, that just kind of runs in our veins as, as children of God. That persecution has never hurt God's people, but comfort always has. But we see that persecution has only grown God's people. Right? We see it, we've seen it in the book of Acts as we're studying through the book of Acts. And we saw it just as Paul was, was planting churches and, and the first century church. Uh, they were persecuted. A lot of them were killed for their faith. Uh, we see that a lot, of, a lot of believers still today are being killed for their faith. They're being martyred for their faith. But we see that persecution has always been like the kerosene, you know, like, like the kerosene to, to that fire of the church. Right? And it's like the more the church goes under persecution, the more it grows. And it's just this supernatural just thing, right, that goes on with the church. You would think that, that you know, under, under protection, you know, that they grow and multiply. But really, when the church is protected and when the church is comfortable, it's when it begins to dissolve, right? It's when all of a sudden, you know, people get complacent. You start hearing false doctrine. You start hearing all kinds of crazy things in the church, right? That's, that's, that, so, and so complacency, comfort comes with, with just this, uh, this, this protection. But we see that when the church is under persecution, when it's under fire, right? When, it, when the pressure is on, that's when it begins to grow. Amazing. Amazing. Now, this, this verse right here says that the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. I mean, really, that should be true of every child of God, right? Despite race or, or, or anything that, just not, not t- just talking about just the Jews or the Hebrews, you know, but uh, I mean, us as children of God, as Christians, as Christians, that should be true of every child of God, that as our faith is tested under trials, it should cause us to just grow and multiply in our faith. And really, the Bible tells us that. The Bible tells us that God allows us to go through these hardships, that God allows us to go through these testings, that God allows us to go even through these persecutions, through these trials, through these testing of our, uh, testings of our faith in order to grow our faith. Notice what Peter says there in 1 Peter 1.7. He says that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, to honor, and to glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's amazing. Because as Christians, you might think, man, well, if God loves me so much, then why would he let me go through all this? Right? Why would he let me uh, uh, suffer, suffer affliction? Why would he let me suffer this, this, uh, this, this heartache? Right? All these things. Why would he let me go through, go through the fire? Be passed through the fire? And really, Peter, tells, Peter gives us the answer. He says that God allows us to go through these things so that the genuineness of our faith may be, may be tried, may be tested. Why? Because it's more precious than gold. And he gives us kind of this, this, this picture, you know, of this purifying of gold. And if you're not familiar with, with how gold or silver or any uh, precious metal is purified, uh, they, they, they put it in a, in a boiling pot, you know, of, of, of pretty much of, of heat, right? They, they, they put it under heat, extreme heat, and they drop this precious metal in it, whether it's gold or whatever it may be. And, and as, it's, as, as, as it's getting hotter and hotter and hotter, all the impurities sink to the bottom. I mean, all, all, the, all the, the pureness sinks to the bottom with all the impurities flow to the top. And what they do, it's called dross. And what they do is they come in and they scoop in all the dross or all the impurities that, that float to the top. And when they take it out, what's left is just pure gold, you know, or pure metal, pure silver, pure bronze, whatever that, that metal is, right? And so Peter is saying, hey man, this God is allowing us to go under that fire, right? Under that testing of our faith so that the pureness of our faith could be, could be revealed. Not to God, because God knows what we're made of, right? But to us, to us. Because sometimes we don't know what we're made of. And God allows us to go through these things, through these testing, so that we can know what we're made of. A lot of times we tap out, like halfway through the, through the cycle, we're like, all right, that's it, I'm out. Can't take it anymore. 
right? And we never find out what it is that God wants to do in us. We never find out what it is that, that, that God wants to, to reveal, you know, uh, uh, to us about ourselves when we tap out too early, right? I was, I was giving this example one time. Uh, I was talking to Liz, and I forgot where else I, I, who else I was talking to, but Liz always brings it up because she thinks it's funny, right? And so, uh, like, uh, I'm always Sunday, some of you guys know Sunday mornings are, I mean, Sunday uh, evenings are my laundry days. That's just when I catch up on laundry. I mean, let's do laundry on Sundays. And my days are always long and busy, so I'm always doing laundry at the end of the day. And, and uh, I, I always do this, you know, and I always say I'm not going to do it, but I always end up doing it. So I throw my, I throw, I throw my, my, my load in the, in the washer, and then I throw it in the dryer. It gets, it gets late, and so I take it, maybe, I take it out maybe 15 or 20 minutes before the dryer is done. I think, oh, that's it. They've been there for a long time. They should be dry. And I always say, all right, I'm just going to leave it. I'm just going to leave it. But I get impatient. I take it out. And I'll take it out before the dryer is done. And some of them are dry. And, you know, I, I, I don't check them. And then when I begin to put them away, all my clothes away, I'm like, oh, man, some are still wet. Oh, man, some are still wet. Dang, I should have just left them in there. But it's like I tap out too early. I take my clothes out because I get impatient. I want my clothes already. And I'm left with, you know, half dry, half, half uh, wet clothes, all musty and smelly. Like, man. And I say, all right, throughout the week, I say, all right, I'm not going to do it again. I'm not going to do it again. And the next week comes and I end up doing it again. <laughs> but it's like, that's how, that's how it could be sometimes, you know, when, when our faith is being tested, that the Lord is allowing us to go through these trials. And we're like, all right, Lord, I know you're testing me. Lord, I know you're in this. Lord, I know, you know, you promised me that you're never going to leave me. You're never going to forsake me. You're going to strengthen me. And it's like, as we're going through the trial, just the heat starts kind of just, you know, getting turned up and we get a little impatient. We get a little whatever it may be. And that's it. We tap out and we, you know, we, we pull out of the dryer cycle. And then we don't find out till later on, like, oh, man, I'm all musty and smelly. Right? Or, or you, get the, you get what I'm trying to say, right? Like, man, I, we, we don't learn what God wanted to show us through that cycle because we tap out too early. And so we see that the children of Israel, as they were there in Egypt, you know, the... the the, the affliction was, was was put on them, you know. This this heavy hand of uh, uh, this heavy burden was was put on them. But it says that the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and they grew. That's amazing. And as they were being afflicted, as they were being burdened, and as they were growing, the Egyptians were the ones that who instead ended up being scared. Right? Their whole their whole motive for 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 doing this to them so that they could be scared, so that they could be fearful. But instead, they ended up being fearful. Notice what it says: it says that they were in dread of the children of Israel, meaning that they were terrified of them. They're like, man, these guys are like superhumans. Right? It's like, man, nothing nothing gets to them. Nothing nothing affects them. You know, the more we we lay on them, it's like, man, the more they grow, the more they they multiply. Right? They were like just like supernatural uh, humans, but really it was just God's blessing on their lives. Right. And so we see that affliction and heavy burdens only strengthen the children of Israel. And for the children of Israel, it's like, I could just imagine them, you know, they're going through this. They're suffering all this persecution. They're suffering all this affliction. They're suffering all this just heaviness. And, and you know what? They're just worshiping God. They're just worshiping God. I like what Jesus says there in Matthew 10, 28. He says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. He says, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Right? And that's to say this, that here in this life, hey, we're going to go through affliction. We're going to go through hardship. Right? We're going to get tempted to just tap out even of our, of our walks. I say, Lord, I can't take it anymore. You know, I, I don't think this Christian stuff is for me. I don't think this, you know, man, it seemed like everything was going good before I became a Christian. And all of a sudden, you know, I started following you and it's like the fire was turned up. Right? But Jesus said this. He said, hey, man, don't fear those who could kill your body, you know, who could, you know, hurt you physically. But, you know, fear God, because God could, he, he could get rid of the body and the soul in hell. You know, but Jesus said, don't fear those who could hurt the body and not the soul. Rather, it's like, man, whatever you could do to our body, it's like, all right, you could do whatever you want to me, you know, but you can't touch my faith. 
right? They can never touch our faith. They can never touch our soul. They can never touch our relationship with God. If anything, it just strengthens our relationship with God. Trials are meant to strengthen our relationship with God. And so it goes on to say then in verse 15, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was, uh, was uh, Shipra, and the name of the other was Pua. And he said, when you do the, duty, the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and, and see them on the, on, on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then you shall let her live. But the midwives feared God and, and, and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And verse 19 says, and the midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God, dwelt, God dealt with them, uh, with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mightily. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided house, households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who was born to you, you're going to cast him to the river, and every daughter who, who, who was born to you, you're going you're gonna to save her, you're going to keep her alive. Man, what's going on? Infanticide. Right? And so Pharaoh, the Pharaoh, at that time, he gets so, uh, you know, so challenged, right? He gets so scared, so fearful that, that, that the nation of Israel is just growing and exceedingly, they're just multiplying so fast that he turns to infanticide. And so what he does is that he speaks to the Hebrew midwives, I mean, those, that, those women who, who help with the, you know, like the nurses, who, who help the women when they were giving birth. And so he speaks to two of them. There was no doubt probably more than two. But it's possible that, that, that these two midwives are part of like the like the, the leaders of all of them, or like the, the you know the, the head the, the head midwives, and so they would they're probably the bosses of all of them, right? And so the Pharaoh speaks to the Hebrew midwives, and he tells he gives them specific instructions, and and, and he tells them, all right, uh, from now on, among all the Hebrew women, if if, if they have any babies, you know, if they're if they're male children, you're gonna kill them, but if they're if they're women, you're gonna let them live. Man, this is crazy. All right, because if you've been paying attention to the news, you know, to some of the, the bills that, that have been uh, getting passed lately, uh, yesterday, Tuesday, one bill passed here in, in California where it would make it legal for, for, uh, for, you know, an abortion, for pretty much a murder to be committed, you know, on a child days, weeks, even months after, after birth, right? And this is just, uh, it's just crazy because, again, like, like Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun, right? It's like, man, this has been going on for thousands of years. You know, we think, man, this is, you know, this is new, this is crazy, right? But we see, we see just history repeating itself, right? And it's nothing different than, than, what, than what Pharaoh did. He commanded all the male children to be killed, you know, after they were already born. And we see that, we see that this is still something that's going on. I mean, there's a huge push for abortion, this huge uh, push for, for, for uh, you know, for, for getting rid of, of babies even after they're born. I mean, I think Colorado just passed a law where it's legal to, to, uh, to, to get rid of a baby, I think even like two weeks after they're already born. It's just insane, right? But we see it in the Bible, you know, this is infanticide. And so this is what, what, Pharaoh, what the Pharaoh of Egypt is desiring to do. He tells the ladies, hey man, if, among all the Hebrew women, if they're pregnant, if, they have, if it's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, you can let him live. But notice what it says about these two Hebrew midwives. It says, but they feared God. The, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. Man, I love that. I love that. Right? And with that, the question comes up. Because later on, as we just read, you know, we see that, that, that Pharaoh asked him, hey, what's going on? I thought, I thought I told you guys to, to, kill, to kill all the, all the baby boys. 
And what was their answer? They said, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Right? And so the question comes up, well, man, uh, they, did they lie to Pharaoh? You know, did God honor their lie? I mean, it could be true. I mean, it could be that, that, that the Hebrew women were. I mean, they're just lively, right? And, 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 and they, had, they had a quick birth, right? They didn't take hours or days, right? It was just something quick. Or it could be that, that the midwives did lie to God and, and God honored their intentions. I like what, what, uh, what Peter says. There in the New Testament, there's a story of, of Peter and John when the Holy Spirit first fell upon the church, upon the, upon the disciples. We're told that, that Peter and John and all the disciples went out there and began to just preach like crazy. They were just on fire for God, filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized with the Holy Spirit. They begin to preach. Uh, Peter preaches his first message and like 4,000 people get saved. Right? And all of a sudden, the Jewish leaders come up to Peter and they say, Hey, man, you guys, you guys got to cut that out. You can't be talking about Jesus here. And this is what Peter says there in Acts 4.19. He says, says, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you be the judge. Right? And then we see that, that, that they listen to God rather than to man. And so the question comes up, is it okay to disobey the law? You know, is, is it okay to, is there, is there instances where we can disobey the, the law? And the answer is, yeah, there is. There is. When it, when it, specifically, and, 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 and when it specifically contradicts God's command, then, then it is. It is. Uh, you guys know a couple years ago, now, a couple years ago now, right? There was a command for, or there was a, a, an ordinance. It was this, uh, this, this it's not, it wasn't a law. It was just an ordinance for all the churches to shut down, right? For no one to meet in person, for no one to sing out loud, to worship God, right? And, and we see that, that that went directly against God's command. You know, God told us, do not, do, not forsake your, do not forsake the assembly of yourselves, you know, together. And so what do we do? Hey, man, we opened up and we kept on doing church, right? And so in that case, it was one of those, hey, is it better to obey the governor or is it better, better to obey God? Well, it was better to obey God, right? And so this is one of those instances where, yeah, Pharaoh gave him specific commands to kill all the baby boys, but they feared God. And they were obeying God rather than, than obeying the Pharaoh. And God honored not their lie. But, they, but he honored their intention, right? Which their intention was to preserve the life of a, of a, of a baby, of a child. And God, and God honored their intention, not the lie. We have other instances of this. Um, for example, a, a few books down there in the book of Joshua, we're told that as the children of Israel, as they were already in the promised land, I mean, they were already in the wilderness and they were getting into the promised land. We have a story of a woman named Rahab, you know, who we're told she was a prostitute. And we're told that as, 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 the, as the two spies of, from the children of Israel came into the land of, of Canaan, that this, that this prostitute saw them from the window. And as, as they came to the city, she hid them in her house. And when the, when the, when the people of, of, of the city came and they were looking for them, they knocked on her door. And they said, hey, have you seen those two, those two Israelite spies? They're going to come over here and they're, they're going to take over our city. And she said, nope, I haven't seen them. Right? And so we see that, that, that God honored her intention as well because she, her intention was, was to save these two men. You know, and then later on, when, when the whole nation of Israel came and they overtook the city, they saved her and her whole household. You know, and so we see again, in that case, it's not that God honored her lie, but God honored, honored her intention. And so there is times where 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 it is you know where, where God will honor our intention. You know, even if, if we're going against you know the government, against the law, against you know against man, pretty much, right? We we have in our history books, you know, the, I mean, you guys all know the story of the, of the Holocaust, you know, and all those horrible things that were going on uh, there in Germany. And we have numerous, numerous stories of people who were hiding Jews in their houses, you know, uh, against, against the law. Against the law, they were hiding Jews in their, in their houses. A lot of them were getting caught and they were being tried and they were being killed for that as well. But they kept on doing it, right? Because in that case, it was better to obey God than to obey man. 
And so this is what, the, what, what we have going on here is that these two midwives, they feared God. And they're, like, they're like, man, no way. We're not going to kill these, two, these, these baby boys. That's, that's crazy. That's demonic. Right? And so they feared God instead. And we're, we're told that, that God dealt with the midwives uh, um, and, and the people multiplied and, and grew very mightily. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who was born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. And so that didn't stop him, right? He still gave out the command. Now notice this. The command went out now not just to the children of Israel, but to all the people, even, even to the Egyptians. We're, we're told that he, that, he, that he gave the command to his people, saying, every son who was born to you, you're going to cast into the river. So it's like him burning with anger, right? He's like, man, you know what? Just, that's it. We're getting rid of all the boys. Any boy who was born, just, just cast him into the river. And so it goes on to say there in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And a man of the house of Levi, that is the tribe of Levi, went and took a wife a, as a wife, a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him for three months. And when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of, of bulrush, bulrushes for him and dabbed it with uh, asphalt and pitch, put the child in it and laid it, laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. And verse 5 says, Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Let's stop right there. And so what's going on? So again, as the Pharaoh gives his command to, again, let's kill all the baby boys. We're told that, that, that there's a, a man of the, of the tribe of Levi and a woman of the tribe of Levi. We're given their names later on. All right, but this was Moses' parents. And so she, she gave birth to a, to a baby boy, which, which is going to be Moses. And we're told that, that when, when she saw the little baby boy, that he was a beautiful child. Right? Obviously, we know that God had, a, not that the rest of the children weren't beautiful, not, not, not that God didn't have a plan for the rest of the children, but, but, but God had a, a specific plan for this specific child. Right? And we're told that, that, that she saw them, you know, she was just... When it says beautiful, that he was beautiful, it means that there was just something about him. He was glowing, right? There was just something special about him. And so she couldn't bring herself to, to, to get rid of her child, right? To, to, to throw her baby into the river, to, to, to kill him, right? Even though she was commanded to, to do so. And so we're told that, that, she, that she kept him for three months. She nursed him for three months. And when she couldn't hide him anymore, he was probably crying all, all, all the time and all that. She couldn't hide him anymore. Uh, we're told that she made this little basket... All right, she, she, she put asphalt and pitch on it and she put the, she put the baby in the basket and she, uh, she sent him down the river. And as the little baby is traveling down the basket, he was quiet this whole time and all of a sudden, you know, by chance, right? We know that nothing happens by chance. Nothing happens by coincidence. But he happens to land there where, where the daughter of Pharaoh is taking a bath. She sees the basket. She grabs the basket. And as soon as she opens the basket, the baby starts crying. I think that's amazing because I, I know that, that, that God is just behind all this because he could have been crying this whole time, right? And she probably could have heard him from afar off and been like, oh man, I don't want to get into that. I don't want to see that. It's, you know, it's going to be too hard for me to see. And she could have let the basket go. But no, she was curious because it was just this basket floating. All of a sudden she opens it and it's not a coincidence that at the moment that she opens the basket, the baby starts crying, right? And we're told that as, as the baby starts crying, as, as the baby weeps, we're told that, that she had compassion on him. And so again, we see that, that God is just kind of behind all this. You know, he was guiding the basket. He was no doubt taking care of them. God was probably guiding and in and, and, and control of, of the waves of the current that day, right? Making sure, sure that the basket didn't tip over, making sure that it didn't hit any rocks, making sure that it didn't get stuck on the, on the, on the wayside. 
Again, man, God was just leading this little basket uh, with Moses in it to, to the daughter of Pharaoh. And so we're told that, 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 that the daughter of Pharaoh, she opens a basket, she sees Moses, the baby, and she says, hey, it's one of the Hebrews' kids, right? It's one of the, it's one of the Hebrew women's kids. And then verse 7 said, then uh, Moses' sister said to, Pharaoh, to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. I mean, I'll pay, I'll, I'll, I'll pay you to do this. So the woman took the child and nursed him and the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. So she called his name Moses saying, because I drew him out of the water. Man, amazing. So this is what's going on. You know, uh, Moses, is, I mean, uh, Pharaoh's daughter, she gets a hold of Moses and as Moses is going down the river, his, his, his sister uh, Miriam it just kind of is just chasing, chasing the basket all, all along the river, right? And she's watching him from afar, and she's watching all this go down. Go down and she sees the daughter of Pharaoh uh, pick up Moses, and all of a sudden she comes out and she says, Hey, uh, you, you want me to find somebody to, to, to nurse your baby for you? Right? Keep in mind, this is, this is, her sister, this is his sister. And she says, Yeah. Uh, and so the Pharaoh's daughter says, Yeah, find me someone to, to nurse his baby, and, and I'll pay him. And so what Moses' sister does is that she goes and she gets her mom. Of course, they didn't tell Pharaoh's daughter that it was his mom. And so Pharaoh's daughter is paying Moses' mom to, to nurse her own child. And so uh, Moses' mom is getting paid to nurse her own child. And, and all the meantime, you know, she gets to pray with them. She gets to minister to them. She gets to sing to them. She gets to, you know, to, to, to tell them about God's law. The, and just, man, just the sovereignty of God. Right? That he was just behind all of this, right? Nothing happens by coincidence, nothing happens by chance. And even in those moments where we think that that's it, man, it's out of my control, there's nothing I can do this about, uh, do about this anymore, God is in control, right? And God has a bigger purpose, a bigger plan. The Bible tells us in Romans 8 28 that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purposes. All things, the good, the bad, the ugly, all things work together for good for those who love God. And so this is what we see that's going on right here. And so there, there, there's Moses back at home. Now his mom's getting a, a paid you know, to, to nurse him. And he's there in the family, right? And so it goes on to say there in verse 11. Uh, verse 11 says, Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown. So a significant amount of, of time has passed by. Uh, about 40 years, actually. So from verse 10 to verse 11, there's been like 40 years that passed by. And so now it came to pass in those days when Moses has, was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and he looked that way and he saw no one. And he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who was wrong, why are you striking your companion? And then he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? He says, do you intend to kill me like you killed the Egyptian the other day? And, and says, so Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Let's stop right there. And so again, 40 years has passed by now. Moses is a grown man. Now the Bible doesn't tell us this, but uh, other, other, uh, other uh, historic, uh, historical writings tell us this. Actually, the, the Jewish historian uh, by the name of Josephus tells us that, that Moses wasn't just, you know, all right, the prince of Egypt, I mean, like we see in the movies. Uh, but but the, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that, that Moses was a man of battle. 
that he would go out there, you know, fighting the nations, you know, leading wars, you know, leading armies out there. He was a tough guy. He was he was a, a man of battle, right? He was next. He was next to to inherit the throne, and so he was working his way up there. You know, he was involved. You know, and so we're told that Moses knew who he was the whole time, right? It's not that. They kept it from him. It's not that they, they hid the adoption papers from him this whole time until he was older. No, as he was growing up, he knew that he was a Hebrew. He knew that he was adopted. He knew that that that, that, that his people were, were the Hebrew children, right? Were, were, the, were the nation of Israel. And so it happens one day that he's just out there and he sees an Egyptian beating one of the Hebrews. And he just you know begins to get this sense of, ju- of justice for him, right? Notice what the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 11, 11 24. I'll read it for you. It says, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 25 says, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the, the passing pleasures of sin. And so what's, what's going on is that as, as Moses is growing older, he's recognizing, man, I, I shouldn't be here. Right? He says, I, I should be with my people. And, and, and Moses had, had this sense of, of, you know, he knew that God was going to use him to deliver the, the, his people, to deliver his nation from, from the Egyptians. But he just didn't know how. But he knew that God was going to use him. He just didn't know how. And so when he sees this going on, he sees an, an Egyptian beating one of the Hebrews. He kind of sees it as, all right, I think this is, this is how it's going to happen, right? I'm going to step in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defend one, one of my brothers, right? One of my, 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 my people. Everyone's going to kind of look to me as like the saver, as like the protector, as like the, you know, defender. You know, I beat up the bullies. And it didn't happen that way. It didn't happen that way. He thought that, that he was going to do that and they were all going to praise him and thank him and kind of obey him and kind of esteem him in a high regard. But it didn't happen that way. Notice what Stephen tells us there in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 7. We have this account of, of a man by the name of Stephen, a believer who was being stoned for, for his faith. right? And as, as he was being stoned, he begins to just preach to all the Jews. And he says this there in Acts 7.23. It says... Now, talking about, uh, about Moses, says, Now, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. Right? We just read that. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men and brethren, why are you, why, why are you doing wrong one another? But he who did, who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptians the other day? And verse 29 says, Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And so again, we see that, that, that Moses had it in his heart. He knew that, that God was going to use him to, to deliver his people. He knew that, 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 that God had a calling on his life. He knew that God was going to use him in some capacity to kind of, again, to, 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 to rule over his people. But he didn't know how. Right at this point, Moses is puffed up, man. He's a man of battle. He's going in and out of battle, leading armies. He's the second in command, right? He's next to to the throne. Um, he's he's there in the, in the in the house of Egypt, right? Of Pharaoh, we're told elsewhere that that, that Moses was was taught and he was uh, skilled in all the ways of the Egyptians. Meaning, he sat under the best teachers. He was he sat uh, he, he had the best instruction, right? He was taught by by, by the best guys. This guy was a a. a, a Oh, he was a brain, right? They, they, they taught him well. And so in his mind, he's puffed up. He's like, man, yeah, I'm, I'm the deliverer of the nation of Israel. That's what he was thinking. And so when he saw his opportunity, he took it, and it didn't go as he thought, right? Instead, uh, they rejected him, and they said, what, uh, are you a judge over us now? You want to kill me like you killed that Egyptian guy? And we're told that Pharaoh found out, and he wanted to kill Moses. So as a result, Moses had to run away. 
And he ends up in a, in a, in a land of, uh, by the name of Midian, Midian, the land of Midian with the Midianites. And it says this, there in verse 16, it says, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs, the troughs of water with their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to, the, to rule their father, he said, How is it that you came so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that you've left the man? Call him that he may eat bread with us. And then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah his daughter to Moses, and she bore him a son. He called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. That name, the name Gershom means stranger. And verse 23 says, Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of their bondage. So God heard their groanings, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. And so what's going on is that as Moses, he has to run away from home, right? He's on the run because he killed a man. He's wanted for murder. Uh, and Pharaoh wants, to, wants his head, right? He wants to kill him. So Moses had to run away from home. He ends up in Midian at some well. He goes from being on top of the world to being nothing, right? He's an Egyptian. He, he, now his, his own people don't want him. The Egyptians don't want him. His, the, his, his own people rejected him. He's, he's nothing and he's no one now. And there he is in the middle of the desert, there in, the, in, in Midian, and he just ends up at a well. You can just imagine, man. He, again, he was at the top of the world one day, and the next day he's just, he's nothing. He's nobody. And really what God is doing is that he's humbling him. Right? He's stripping him of, of his own strength, of his own you know, self-esteem, of, of everything that he thinks he is. God is stripping him of that. I believe it was A.W. Tozer who said this. He says, I highly, I highly doubt God can truly use a man before he, before he hurts a man. Right? Meaning, amen, before God can use a man, he needs to wound him, he needs to hurt him deeply. Right? And that's not because God is cruel. That's not because God you know, loves to beat us up or anything like that. But, but it's because he's refining us through the trials. Right? And we all know, you know that, that as we go through things in our lives, it changes your perspective, right? It changes your, your outlook on life. It changes even your heart. Right? All of a sudden, it's like you get more compassion for certain individuals or you get more compassion, more love for certain situations. And, and what God does, you know, as we go through trials, as He you know, allows us to be wounded by the, uh, by, you know, the sinful nature and the things that go on in this life, is that He begins to break us. To break us down, to break our walls down, to kind of break, you know, uh, our, our, our trust in our own selves. And he gets us to that place where we recognize, God, I need you. And I thought I had it all under control, but as soon as this thing came crumbling down, I realized that I had control of nothing. And so that's, what go, that's what's going on with Moses, is that, again, he was on the top of the world, you know, the most powerful man, uh, leading armies in and out, right? He thought, he knew God, God was going to use him to deliver his people. And all of a sudden, he's rejected by the Egyptians, rejected by the Hebrews. And now he's there at this well, and he's nothing. He's nothing. He has to start all over again, right? He has to now find his identity, but in God. And so we're told there in uh, chapter 3 now, we're going to read a few verses. And it says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of, from the midst of a bush, so he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why, why does the bush uh, not burn? Right? And so as Moses is there now, 
Uh, they're, they're, they're in the, in the, in, in the field, right? He's, we're told that he's tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. Remember uh, in the beginning of the study, we mentioned how, how, when, how when Jacob and his sons and, and all of them came into Egypt, when, when Joseph was still around, remember how I mentioned that, that Joseph told him, he told his family, hey, when you guys come in, make sure you tell everyone that, that you're shepherds, right? Because Egyptians hate shepherds. Egyptians, you know, to an Egyptian, a shepherd is like the most despised thing in the world. It's like the lowest job of all the lowest jobs, right? Um, for us, you know, like that work construction, for me, man, uh, like the, the the job I least want is a guy who comes in once a week to clean the porta potties. I'm like, man, dude, I would hate to be that guy, right? And we see him every week, right, right Mark? I mean, these guys show up to the job size. There's 10, 15, 20 porta potties in the middle of summer. These guys are right there with the big old truck and the big hose and then cleaning out the porta potties and the whole job size stinks. And I'm like, man, I would hate to be that guy. I mean, it's a, he's earning his money, right? I mean, I'm just saying, I, me personally, I'm like, man, I would hate to be that guy. And so the Egyptians looked at the, she- looked at the shepherds that way, like, man, that's like the lowest job. That's like a demeaning job, degrading job, right, to be a shepherd. And so here's Moses now, a shepherd. He went from being the, the, the prince of Egypt, right, the second in command, the guy who's going to take over the throne. He went from thinking that he's going to, you know, deliver his people, and that all the Hebrews are going to kind of look at him as their savior, to now being the lowest of the low, a shepherd. And we're told that, Actually, this was you know he was doing this for forty years, and so it's interesting that that that, that God worked, God has worked in Moses' life kind of like in increments of forty, right? Uh, it was forty years until until you know he, he he when when he when he beat up the Egyptian and killed the Egyptian, right? Then he was sent out, then he was he was there with with his father-in-law for forty years, and then he's going to be forty years in the in the wilderness with the children of Israel. So God kind of works in Moses' life in, in that increment of forty, and so now as Moses is there in the field tending the flock as a shepherd now. He is completely humbled, right? He became, he became a shepherd. I mean, the most despised thing there in Egypt. So in his mind, it's like God was getting rid of all his, you know, preconceived notions of, oh, this is high class society, whatever, you know, about himself. It's like now he's a shepherd. He's back to just being nobody. And so as he's there in the field, one day God appears to him. We're told that the angel of the Lord appeared to him. In the Old Testament, whenever you, you see this phrase, the angel of the Lord, and your Bible is typically the word angel is, is, uh, is capitalized, or the letter is capitalized, the letter A is capitalized. It's, it's really uh, what, what we would call a Christophany, meaning uh, a, pre, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. So there's actually Jesus in the Old Testament, coming as the angel of the Lord. And so he appeared to, to Moses there in a the form of a burning bush. Now, there's a lot of skepticism, you know, that goes around this. You know, hey, how can you know God appear to Moses in a in a burning bush? I've heard guys like Joe Rogan say that that uh, that Moses was that there's a certain plant there in that area of Midian, and it makes you hallucinate, and that Moses was hallucinating, and that's why he he thought he saw this bush that wasn't burning. All kinds of crazy things, right? Uh, people who, who who deny the 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 deity of, of Christ, people who deny the supernatural power of God, are always going to attack little things like that. But if you could believe that God created the heavens and the earth in seven days, then, I mean, this is really nothing for me, right? I believe that, that, that God could, you know, is a God of miracles. He's done miracles in the Bible. He's done miracles in our lives. He's done miracles in my life. You know what I mean? He's healed me supernaturally. I've seen him heal people supernaturally. I've, I've seen the hand, of, the hand of God work. So this is no big deal, right? So God appears to, to Moses now in the form of a bush that was burning, but it was not consumed. And so Moses looks at that, he's like, huh, this is bush, this bush burning, but it's not consumed. I'm going to go see what's going on over there, right? And so as he's coming close, we're told this in verse 4. 
So when the Lord saw that, that he turned aside to look, God called him to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Notice that, 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 that God didn't call to him until Moses began to walk towards him. Right? It wasn't until it wasn't until Moses turned aside to look, right? You know, looking at what's going on, that God says, Moses, Moses. Now Moses could have been walking way over there, not even seeing the bush, and God said, Moses, Moses, right? Oh, who's that calling me? Oh, God, is it you? Right? But instead, uh, God God speaks to Moses. He calls Moses once Moses, you know, takes that first step. And for us, I mean, we know that the the Bible says that God's desire is for none to perish. Right? And we know that God has a plan for every single one of us. And sometimes we're like just kind of wandering, like, man, Lord, what is your plan for me? Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, I know you've called me to something, but what is it? What's my purpose? Right? Well, God's first purpose for you is that you would be saved. But the second is that you would take steps of faith. Right? And it's, it's as we take those steps of faith, as we kind of draw near to God, the Bible says, draw near to the Lord and he will draw near to you. And so that's what Moses is doing is that you know, he's drawing near to God. And all of a sudden, that's when God calls him Moses. Moses. Right? And so Moses wasn't in the place to hear from God. Until he was drawn near to God. But as soon as he begins to draw near to God, that bush, he's able to hear God. What the? That's the first time he ever hears the voice of God. And he says, all right, here I am. Right? And God tells him, hey, don't come any closer. He says, don't come any closer and take your sandals off because the place where you're standing is holy ground. Right? He said it was holy ground because the presence of God was right there in the midst of him. And so he goes on to tell him, he says, moreover, he said, I am the God of your father. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from, the, from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. I'll stop right there. So, as, as, as Moses hears God, right? God says, all right, don't come any closer. Take your shoes off. This place is holy. And then, and then he tells him, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Keep in mind, Moses right now at this point has no identity, right? He doesn't know who he is anymore. He thought he was a Hebrew. He was not a Hebrew. They reject him. He thought he was an Egyptian. He's not an Egyptian. They're trying to kill him. It's like he's just wandering. Now he's a shepherd. He's, his, his identity is completely lost. You can just imagine what's going on through, through his head. Man, who am I? Who, what's my purpose? All these other things. You know, what's, what am I doing here? And it's at this time where God speaks to him. Now, remember we mentioned that the book of Genesis ended with, with, uh, with, with, the, with the family of Jacob and all of them there in, there in Israel. I mean, they're there in Egypt. And then we'll pick it up 400 something years later. Keep in mind that in that gap of four, like 430 years, we don't, we don't have any recordings of, of God speaking to his people. And so God didn't speak to his people for about 400 years. And the guy who he speaks to is this, uh, this nobody out there in the wilderness, out, out there in the desert. All right, this guy trying to find himself, Moses. There's nobody. Man, I love that. I love that because Moses was like at his lowest point right there. And that's when God called him. You know, he was like at his lowest point, And that's when God spoke to him. Right? That's when God made himself known to him. That's awesome. I love that. Right, because God will sometimes allow us to get to our lowest points. Right, because it's sometimes at our lowest, lowest points where we're able to hear from God. 
Right? Where, where, where our heart is just sensitive to, to His voice, sensitive to His calling, sensitive to His leading, just sensitive to, to His Holy Spirit. And so here's Moses right now with no identity, doesn't know who he is, and all of a sudden God appears to him and says, hey, I'm the God of your fathers. What? Yeah, I'm the, I'm the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, and his forefathers. Man, all of a sudden he has an identity now, right? And so it goes on to say there in verse, uh, verse 11, it says, Verse 10, sorry. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Man, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Notice what he says. Who am I? 40 years ago, Moses was saying, I'm the guy, right? I'm, I'm the guy to deliver Israel. I'm the guy to deliver the people. I'm the, I'm the guy to deliver the Hebrews. Now, 40 years later, you know, as he's crushed, brought down to nothing, now he's saying, Man, Lord, who am I? He went from, from, from saying, I'm the guy, to saying, man, who am I? And that's what God was trying to do in his heart, you know, is that he was trying to humble him. He was trying to uh, get him to, to his weakest point, right? Why? So that God could work through him, right? Moses was, was too strong for God to work, to, work, to work through him. It's been said that you can never be too, too small, you know, uh, uh, for God to use you, but you can be too big. I mean, hey man, you could be too big in yourself that, that hey man, God's not going to use you because you're too big, right? You're too full of yourself. You're, man, you don't need God. And so you, you can never be too small for God to use you, but you can be too, good, too big for God to use you. And so Moses was too big 40 years prior to this, but now he's, he's small, he's tiny. He's like, man, I'm nobody. So now he says, man, God, who am I? Who am I to go talk to Pharaoh? Who am I to go speak to my people, right? And verse 12 says, so God said, I will certainly be with you and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, uh, has sent me to you. And they say to me, What's his name then? And you know, if, you, if you really send to them, what's his name? Then, then, then uh, what am I going to say to them? And God answered there in verse 14. He says, And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey. So now this God's promise is going to be fulfilled to them. And verse 18 says, Then they will heed your voice, and you shall come, and, and you shall come, uh, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met me, has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders which I will do in, his, in the midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give his people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty handed. But every woman shall ask her neighbor, namely of, uh, of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, gold, clothing. So he's saying, man, you're not going to go empty handed. He's telling them, Look, I'm going to send you to, to, to Pharaoh. I'm going to send you to the elders of, of, of the nation of Israel. Uh, look, um, you're going to tell Pharaoh that, that, that I've commanded them uh, for him to let you go. He's not going to want to at first. I'm going to come down on him with some affliction. Then he's going to let you go, but you're not going to go empty-handed. Keep in mind that they've been working 
for free pretty much, you know, all, all this time. It's, they've been working as, as slaves. And so God has promised them that when he delivers them out of Egypt, they're going to go, they're going to take, you know, all their wages with them. You know, all that time that they worked for free, all the time that they were being used as slave labor, hey, you guys aren't going to leave empty-handed. But he's saying, you're going to go and you're going to take your wages with you. Amazing. Amazing. You know, this is kind of just where everything's going to start kicking off now. Right? But just in these few chapters, we just see again the sovereignty of God just behind the scenes. Right? Working in the, man of, in the life of one man, one individual, but also as in a nation as a whole. Right? And we can always be sure that, that, that God is always working behind the scenes. We may not see it right away, but, but we know that God is working behind the scenes. Right? One thing I like that, that really stands out to me, what, what God told uh, Moses there in verse, verse 7 of, of chapter 3. He says, I have surely seen the oppression of my people. In Egypt, and I've heard the cry, and he says, and he says, and I've come down to deliver. He says, I've seen, I've heard, and I'm gonna deliver. I and mean, sometimes we feel like that, man, Lord, do you even see me? God says, I, I've seen, man, Lord, do you hear me? Do you hear my prayer? Do you hear my cries? And I do hear every time I call out to you. He says, I've heard. He says, man, Lord, and we get to a point where we're like, Lord, are you, are you are you gonna do anything? I've been waiting for years. I've been waiting for answers. Seems like nothing's happening. And God says, I'm gonna deliver. Right? For the children of Israel, he says, I've seen, I've heard, I'm going to deliver. And for us as well, whatever it is that you're petitioning God, whatever it is that you've been praying for years, maybe months, weeks, days, maybe a few minutes, but maybe years, maybe those, man, God, what's going to happen? What are you going to do? Lord, I've been, I want to know what this, that, or the other, whatever, fill in the blank. Amen. God sees. God hears. And God's going to deliver. Right? And it's perfect timing. Amen? Amen. Father God, just thank you so much for your word. I pray that you would... Uh, Lord, that, that your word, word would just be, be stuck in our hearts, Lord, in our thoughts, in our mind, that we would be able to just meditate on your word, uh, uh, Lord, as, as we go through our, through our nights tonight, Lord, and through the rest of our, of our weeks, Father. Keep us hungry for your word. Keep us hungry for your presence, Lord. Keep us hungry for, for just knowing you, Lord. Thank you so much for, for your word, Lord, that we're able to just go through it, uh, study it, Lord, learn from it, and draw closer to you, Lord. I pray you would bless my brothers and sisters, Lord. May you just give us a good night's rest, Lord. Help us get to work tomorrow, Lord. Just uh, refresh like if we would have slept 12 hours. And, Lord, we just love you, Lord. We praise you. And now uh, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.